Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Serving under four presidents from both parties, Alan Greenspan holds the title as the second longest serving Federal Reserve chairman overseeing America's economy through booms and busts from the 1980s through the 2000s. Growing up the son of a stockbroker in New York City, Greenspan studied clarinet at Juilliard School before graduating from NYU with a degree in economics. After time at the conference board and his own economic consulting firm, President Ronald Reagan nominated Greenspan to succeed Paul Volcker as Fed chair, and he was confirmed in August of 1987. Greenspan was subsequently renominated as Fed chair by President Clinton with both George W. and H.W. Bush. After being replaced by Ben Bernanke in 2006, Greenspan founded an economic consulting firm and wrote a memoir entitled The Age of Turbulence, Adventures in a New World. Greenspan has a new book out now called Capitalism in America, A History, which he wrote with Financial Times reporter Adrian Wooldridge. He recently sat down with Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. They spoke on David Rubenstein's Bloomberg television program, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. John Kenneth Galbraith once famously said that conventional wisdom is almost always wrong. Now, the conventional wisdom today is that the U.S. economy is very strong. I think your view is that might not be accurate. Is that correct? You don't think it's that strong? Well, I think it's a different form of what we call stagflation. It has some of the characteristics of buoyancy, but underneath it is an erosion which ultimately will disable the economy unless it's corrected. Do you see any movement to solve, let's say, the deficit and debt problem? I see a lot of talk, uh, but uh, no realistic movement. I mean, right now we are creating a deficit of a trillion dollars a year and uh, that is being added net to the stock of debt. And debt as a percent of GDP is rising very rapidly and the demographics of the age groups are such is that that's going to accelerate in the immediate future. So if you could wave a magic wand and help reduce this deficit and debt, what would you do? Well, the question is, what's the cause of it? And the cause of it is essentially on both the expenditure and on the tax side. Uh, I actually fully approve of the tax cuts that were made, but only in the context that it is funded. In other words, we went to a very significant cut in the marginal corporate tax rate, but you can't have a tax cut without finding the revenues elsewhere okay. or you run into problems. So the new tax cut bill that was passed in the first year of President Trump's administration by the Congress said in effect that we'll produce 3% or more growth for the foreseeable future. Do you think 3% annualized growth is realistic over the next five or 10 years? No, certainly not as a consequence of the tax cut. The tax cut actually did get a buoyancy and we're still feeling some of it but it's nowhere near enough to offset the actual deficit. 
So there's no way around this without coming to grips okay. with the expenditure side. Okay, so President uh, Trump called you up and said, uh, Alan, you're a great uh, former chairman of the Federal Reserve. I need some advice. I want you to solve the Social Security problem and the Medicare and Medicaid problem. What would you tell him to do? Go elsewhere. Go elsewhere. Because you think it's too difficult politically. I, I think politically we are caught in a terrible problem. So let's talk about uh, another issue that uh, you've talked about, uh, which is productivity. Well, your point is that we don't have the productivity that we should have, in part because we've borrowed so much money, and that's squeezing out the money that would be otherwise available for productivity increases. Precisely. It's the capital investment right. which ultimately determines what productivity will be. In fact, our equations show that you can explain it all with the net capital stock that's built up in business, plus uh, uh, some measures of uh, educational efficiency. Okay. But we, we're not doing it. Now, Harry Truman, when he was listening to his economic advisors, said, you know, please bring me a one-handed economist because they always said, well, on the one hand this, and the other hand this, and he got tired of that. So um, let me ask you a direct question. Uh, can you tell me when the next recession is going to happen? Sometime. 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 But we've had recessions every seven years on average since World War II. It's going to be driven by the fact that the debt is rising dramatically. And there's going to be some curtailments occurring from that, and it's going to feed on itself. What I'm saying, we talk about stagflation. Stagflation is something that happened in the 1980s when you had a situation where both unemployment and inflation were high, uh, something which the original Keynesian model said was okay. not possible. And we're going into that type of period now, if you look at all the guidelines. If you were worried that we're going to go into a recession at some point, um, you, do you invest your money in a certain way to protect against that? Well, you can't protect everything. And the point is you can't forecast uh, very, very accurately. Right now, uh, we've been at an extreme period of extremely low, real long-term interest rates. And they're beginning now to move up, will continue to move up, and that is going to cause the basic turn in the market. Are you worried about inflation right now? I think I'm beginning to see the first signs of it. We're seeing it basically in the tightening of the labor markets first, which, as you know, are getting very tight now. We're beginning finally to see uh, average wages rise. And uh, clearly, there's no productivity behind it. Our productivity increase in the last 10 years has averaged under 1% a year. It's a historic low. Uh, not a, I might add, it's not only we. It's Europe and everybody else as well. You're getting into a system now which has no outcome that's in equilibrium other than inflation and uh, low productivity growth. And that is not something which says we're going to have long-term well, acceleration and growth. So what would you recommend that we do to solve the problems that you pointed out? Well, the basic problem is fundamentally on the expenditure side. So that the, the issue is, I would say, 
90% entitlements. Now, these are, as you know, basically uh, legislated payments to certain groups, irrespective of what they're paying into funds. And uh, we've, we've overdone it. Now, the question, obviously, is, well, if we've overdone it, why don't we just pull it back? That is the economic conclusion. It is not a credible political conclusion. Now, let me shift for a moment, if I could, to your own personal life and career. When you were a young uh, boy, did you say, I want to be chairman of the Federal Reserve Board? <laughs> no? That's the last thing I could barely pronounce the words at the time. My aspiration was to be a musician. So I went to Juilliard for a few years. Your instrument was what? I, I played the uh, clarinet, tennis saxophone, bass clarinet, and a little flute. But for all of those, you weren't good at any of them to be a really professional, make your whole career at that? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I could have, but I said I'll only be Class B because I sat next to a 15-year-old by the name of Stanley Getz when I was 16. We both had the same saxophone teacher. And I said, my God, this kid is terrific. And I said to myself, uh, uh, if you can't be this good, why do you want to be second best? Well, why didn't you tell him he should go into economics and get rid of him? I should have done that. should have thought of that. I, I never thought of it. That would have been a good idea. So you ultimately left Juilliard and you went to NYU? Yes. Well, I actually was very surprised. I didn't think I was going to be a good student. I knew I did well in math in high school. I did not, was, wasn't absolutely sure how well I would do in college. It turns out that uh, not only did I graduate summa cum laude, but I had only two B's in shop and gym. Shop and gym, so, okay, so. And I got A's in everything else. And there was no one more surprised than I. So you graduate summa cum laude from NYU. Uh, you've given up your music career. What did you do when you graduated? Uh, well, first of all, I went to the National Industrial Conference Board. For the first time, I went into the business world. I, I wasn't really all that interested in it and found myself fascinated. And I, uh, at a fairly young age, was like 22, was writing articles uh, for the conference board magazine. And I was fascinated by it. I was getting quoted in the New York Times okay. at, at a very early age. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
So the New York Times is quoting you and you're in your 20s, and then you ultimately became, a, in fact, a, a well-known, ultimately a well-known consultant on Wall Street. And on the side, you become close to or get to know a very famous writer named Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. And what was the appeal of her to you? What fascinated was her heroes. And when I read her books, Fountainhead and then Atlas Shrugged, I was caught up in that science thing, which said basically that uh, uh, you can't have anything rational about human emotions. And uh, I had an argument about uncertainty with Ayn Rand, because when I, since I met her, and uh, uh, I kept saying that human values are, are irrational. This, you know, they're not conceptually put together. And uh, she then proceeded to take me apart piece by piece showing the contradictions in my position. But did you think she was smarter than you? She demonstrated she was smarter than me. Hey. And I, we, we, we actually became very close. You obviously built a very good reputation on Wall Street because uh, Richard Nixon, President of the United States, um, asked you to serve as the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And uh, you actually had agreed to do so, but then something happened to President Nixon, is that right? Something I've forgotten what it was, yeah. And Nixon resigned and Ford, as vice president, became president. Ultimately, you got to be close to President Ford, but Ford lost the election to my former boss, Jimmy Carter, in 1976, and you went back to Wall Street, is that right? You're pretty prominent now as the former head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And then ultimately, President Reagan says to you, why don't you come in and be the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. Did you meet with Reagan before you accepted the offer? Well, I actually had met with him quite often during his campaign. I was part of the Reagan for President campaign staff so that I got to work with him fairly closely. So you take the job and you held the job for 18 or 19 years? 18 and a half. 18 and a half years. You were called by many the maestro, and you were given a lot of credibility for the U.S. economy being in such good shape. Did you ever think that people were giving you too much credit for being such a great maestro of the economy, or do you think they were pretty right in I, saying that? I, I said, wait, it won't last. Uh, you can't, uh, uh, popularity in Washington is basically related to what it is you do and if you have no, if you don't have 100% control of what it is that happens as a consequence of what you're doing, you get caught by the fluctuations up and down. My major concern, and I was acutely aware of it, is I was getting much too credit, too much of the credit for what actually was going on. And I said, don't worry about it, it'll come out on the other side. Well, in those years, um, people often uh, would say, Let's photograph uh, Alan Greenspan walking into the Federal Reserve Building. If he has a big, fat uh, set of books with him or papers, that means he's about to make a historic decision. If he has nothing very much, that means no historic decision. So was that was there any truth to the validity of your carrying a lot of things into the... I mean, it was my briefcase. Briefcase. Depending on whether my wife made me lunch. So there really was nothing to that theory. What no, about, not, not everybody knew that, of course. What about the theory that... Uh, you made your key decisions in the bathtub in the morning because you had a bad back. You would take a bath every morning and that you would write 
uh, notes to people and it would come back kind of uh, with little watermarks on it because you were doing this in the bathtub. Did you make good decisions there, do you think? Oh, of course. And I was, I was writing speeches in the bathtub. Okay. But that, uh, the back, which is still obviously still a problem, uh, I was required to lie on my back full time for six weeks by an orthopedist. I uh, ran my business looking up at the ceiling. All right, so you stepped down and all of a sudden everybody in the world wants to get your advice on things. Was it uh, a shock or you actually anticipated that would happen? I was shocked. I was shocked at the price that they bid up on my first book. I was shocked by the fees I was getting. Pretty much uh, for a number of years. So things went very well, and then the economy collapses. And so all of a sudden, people are saying, well, it was Alan Greenspan's fault because he should have anticipated this. Did you think that was fair? And were you surprised by how much criticism you received at that point? One, I did not think it was fair, but I never expected it to be fair. And uh, I anticipated that it was going to happen. I just didn't know exactly when. But nobody forecast the 2008 crisis. One of the things I put in the second book I wrote uh, was how the IMF missed it, uh, the Federal Reserve missed it. Uh, You go down a whole series of uh, the major forecasting. Well, everybody got it wrong, let's say. Every, every, I mean, but uh, the purpose was I didn't find that a, a surprise. You can't have a crisis of that nature that, it, that is not a surprise. So if you look back on your term as the Federal Reserve uh, Chair, would you have done anything different in light of events that happened after you left? Would you have done something differently? Not that I'm aware of, no. When you testified in Congress, you were famous for not being that precise in terms of being clear, clear let's say. You were you used what I would call Fed speak because you were obfuscating a little bit. Was that on purpose? Oh, yes. In other words... Uh, it was a general rule that, uh, at that time that the Federal Reserve did not make public what it was going to do. Okay. We do now, but uh, not, not back then. And so the question was, what ways could I figure around answering certain questions or not answering them? And I, had, uh, I worked up a means of a vote vocabulary which uh, no no one could quite understand and were too ashamed to say they don't understand. All right, so it was on purpose. Oh, yes. Why do you think it is that we're not as creative uh, as we were before in coming up with new companies and so forth? There's more to it than just strictly the issue of the simple capitalist thing. We're getting more and more regulation. So let's talk a moment now about your book, Capitalism in America. One of the key points of your book is that we have something in the United States called uh, what you've called uh, creative uh, destruction. Creative destruction essentially means that entrepreneurs start new companies, but you're worried, according to the book, that we're not doing that as much now. Is that right? That's correct. And why do you think it is that we're not as creative uh, as we were before in coming up with new companies and so forth? There's more to it than just strictly the issue of the simple capitalist thing. We're getting more and more regulation. In, in fact, the, uh, the one thing I'm, uh, I'm waiting to see the consequences of uh, what the 
current administration's deregulation operations are doing because uh, what we show in the book is examples of uh, the extraordinary broadening of controls which, uh, I mean, people, this may seem strange to use this example, but to be a florist or something related which has no effect on human life or health, right? you, need, you, need a, you need a permit. Uh, that never was the case. Uh, so your point is there's too much regulation. Uh, what is remarkable about the United States is we went up and down. You would have thought that after the 1930s uh, that uh, capitalism was shot, gone, no, not coming back. And ironically, it got resurrected during World War II where it was very obvious that the private sector right. was what essentially won the war. And uh, uh, today, uh, the ownership of capital is not as unequivocal as it used to be. And the regulation and the uh, taxation and the, the culture is not so what it used to the be. The main point of your book, I thought, was to say we've had a very unique capitalist system, but maybe there's some dangers that what we made us so unique aren't going to be available in the future. Is that That's fair? exactly exactly right. So you're now in your 90s. Yes. And um, did your parents live to, to be this age, or do you have long genes? Yeah, or? Uh, my, my mother uh, lived to mid-90s. So the success, other than good genes, is what would you attribute it to? It's um, eating well, exercising a lot, uh, reading a lot of uh, productivity data reports. What is it that you attribute your longevity well, to? Well, it's got to be the productivity. Product, reading a lot of productivity data reports is probably what's done it. One of your great accomplishments we haven't talked about is you've been married to Andrea Mitchell for quite some time, a, a NBC correspondent, among other things she's achieved. So anything you would like to say about uh, your marriage to Andrea Mitchell? It's been wonderful. Okay. And does she give you advice on economic matters ever? You give her advice on media matters ever? She gives me advice on everything. Okay. Sometimes I take it. Uh, you've met a lot of famous people, uh, presidents of the United States, heads of state from other countries, uh, finance secretaries, uh, ministers, secretaries of treasury, secretaries of state. Who would you say are among the most impressive people you are privileged to meet? Let's say the two smartest. Two smartest were? got impeached, Bill Clinton and <laughs> Richard Nixon. Okay. I mean, they, uh, I would say on a strictly IQ basis, those two, but they had other flaws, obviously. Do you ever have any regrets about anything you did in your career, and do you ever regret not going into private equity? Well, uh, I'm an economist. Making money per se has never been my interest. It's turned out that it's a good fallout, but it was never my real purpose. If you ever want to reinvent yourself as a private equity person, let me know. You could, you know, learn this business and still be very good in it. After I've run out of economics, I... Okay, you'll give me a call. You know, my problem, basically, is the economy keeps fascinating me. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.